Hey yo, we about to tear it up. It's the Breaking Atoms podcast where we break things down to the very last compound. My name is Chris Mitchell, a.k.a. The Professional Pessimist. Today's episode is a special one. I have an exclusive interview with the one and only Dart Adams. Dart is a world-renowned author, writer, curator. He's a public speaker, journalist, blogger, advocate for great art, and he's a man of much-lived experience. We spoke about life growing up in Boston, the early pioneers of hip-hop in Boston, his new book, The Book of Dart, what it takes to be a historian, and a lot more. So if you like detail, you like context, and you like straight talk, this one's for you. I, I want to document something before we start. For um, sure. In the last 24 hours, we lost uh, Ty here in the UK. He Absolutely. Was away. So rest in peace to Ty. One thing um, that a lot of us are talking about over here is respecting, respecting our legends and showing, showing people love and giving them their flowers while they're here. Um, and I just mm. want to document publicly that you're someone who I respect greatly. Um, I really appreciate your perspective. You make me think. You make me also reconsider my position on a lot of things. Um, and you're one of the main reasons why in the last few years I've realized that I'm not that crazy because there's, there's people out there who feel similarly about the music and the culture that I do. So I just want to say thank you for everything you do and for being a big inspiration to me. Thank you. I appreciate that. All good. So let's start from the beginning. Um, Boston, what was it like for you growing up in the Boston area? Uh, well, Boston is one of the oldest cities in the United States. So Boston predates America by about 150 years. And Boston, when you grow up in a city like that, there's a deep connection to the culture of that city and its historic place in the city. So Boston's home for a lot of firsts in America. Like first, as far as anything you could imagine, Boston is first. Like we created the chocolate chip cookie. We created the, the uh, ice, you know, freezing, you know, we created the, 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 the steakhouse, wow. you know, the typical menu for a steakhouse or a seafood restaurant. We created the, the, the concept of the waitress, not the barmaid, the waitress, like Boston created damn near everything, including the revolution that led to America. So growing up as a black kid in the South End, Lower Roxbury part of Boston was especially different because um, the first sizable enclave that black people had in the United States of America was in Boston. So like... There were settlements that had black residents, but not free ones that were able to have any type of autonomy, you know, and sue for their freedom and serve in court and do all these things. That being said, with all this liberalness, it's still extremely racist and we have to deal with racism at every point, you know, but living in the South End, Lower Roxbury, into Roxbury in Boston gave me a sense of purpose and importance and it also connected me directly to history so that's partly why i am the way i am i wasn't expecting an answer like that and i was at the same time you've just given me a brief history um into boston there's something that you mentioned in your answer and i'm going to go off on a bit of a tangent here you talk about racism in boston 
or in certain mm-hmm. parts of Boston, correct me if I'm wrong. You've mentioned it on your timeline as well that black history in Boston is not being respected or documented in the way that it should be. Why is that happening and what's the solution to that? It's not happening because if you're not necessarily a part of that uh, segment of the population and you don't really relate to that segment of the population, you're not going to go out of your way to highlight it. Mm. It's one of those things where you have to stand up and be counted. Right. So I, at every turn, make sure that I'm letting everyone know, hey, hey, the idea of Boston includes me. And I'm not begging for inclusion. I'm telling you, I am the city. So I don't come from a perspective of, hey, guys, maybe you should. I come from a perspective of, hey, this is what you're doing wrong. This is what you're leaving out. And you're not giving a full scope of what we have to offer, what the city's about. So, and you know, Boston does not make any real attempts to actually change things until recently where enough people have come up and done things and made their presence known where the first thing they do is get on the phone or they text or they write and they're like, all right, what's wrong with this and how can we fix it to make it more inclusive or what are we leaving out? Mm. And that a lot of those changes have happened in the last five to eight years. Okay. Let's stick with Boston and shift into the Adams household. So me growing up in the UK, um, I grew up in a church background. So mum was the choir director. Uh, my start in music was gospel music. My family went into hip hop or R and B, you know, in, in a more overt way. You yeah. mention your your siblings often on your podcast. My brother and sister aren't into hip hop music. What was it like growing up with your siblings, and how did they kind of facilitate your entry point into music? And like, what what was it like in terms of sharing music and the culture in your household? In the home, everything was based around the stereo records. Uh, my mom had eight tracks, eight track cassette tapes too. So. I would listen to her records, even though at a young age, I wasn't necessarily allowed to touch the records. So the easier thing for me was to use the 8-track. All you have to do is take the 8-track and stick it in. And what can a kid mess up about that? You know which way it goes in. You're not dumb. You can read. So um, I used to listen to the 8-track tapes. My older brother, older brother six years older, older sister's eight years older, they would use the stereo system so I, if I wanted to play something, I would ask them or they would show me. And the radio was always on. Boston had a million radio stations. Uh, so, and a lot of college radio because it was a college town. So I listened to a lot of that. And then upstairs, uh, we had family friends that lived upstairs. And two kids who were older than me, one 10 years, one 12 years, named James and Derek, who both ended up being DJs. And when my older brother and sister would go upstairs to hang out with James and Derek, I would follow after them. And that was a whole new world in my entry point into music. Okay, so you've, you've actually led into my, my next question because I was going to ask you what were the DJ's names. So you told me it's James and Derek. What were yeah. the DJ names if they had any? And what, what songs do you remember hearing from them for the first time? Uh, so between the years of 19... 1977, 78, 79, 80, 81. Uh, any music, any big album in black music that you can imagine, I heard. Either singles through the radio, 
or going upstairs and hearing them play, whether it be Rick James, Prince. I was introduced to Prince through them. Prince's first album, For You, did not impress me. Uh, Prince's second <laughs> album is when I became a fan. That's 1979. Okay. Uh, October 1979, Prince releases his second album, and uh, Patrice Russian releases Pizzazz. Love her. And that same month, I also hear Rapper's Delight on the local radio station, WILD, played in full. So... If you, if you could imagine it, Tina Marie, first heard Tina Marie there. Um, mm-hmm. uh, any of the regular albums here, uh, um, Earth, Wind, and Fire, uh, Change, all these type of records. And of course, as you know, at that time, black music in the UK was coming over and we didn't even realize that it was from the UK. We'd hear something like Lynx, You're Lying. You know, we had no idea they were from um, Eye Level, Give Me. You notice there's an accent, but you don't know that the guys are from the UK, you know, uh, silver, um, um, central line, you know, we didn't, I didn't know those guys are from the UK. So it's like walking in the sunshine, I had no idea, but like, we didn't real, I didn't realize how much music really came from the UK until like 82, 83, when like Arthur Baker and everybody was producing music for guys over there. Mm-hmm. And then like, I started to notice, but yeah. Pretty much anything you could imagine, I heard going upstairs. Dope. All right. So I was watching the new edition, uh, the three-part documentary. Um, every time I, I, I think of new edition or I, I, I listen to their music, I just think of Boston and you come to mind. One of the key scenes in the documentary was the talent show that they entered. They entered a few talent shows, but there was one in particular where I think is that, you know, they did really well. Um, people started to really love their music and words started to spread. Following from following on from what you said, you talk about the talent show scene a lot in Boston during, during yeah. that time and how you guys was killing it out there. If you could take us back in time just a bit and tell us a bit about the talent show scene, like some of the names, the venues and acts that basically killed the talent scene, the talent show scene and ended up at particular labels. You don't need to go through the whole thing, maybe just two or three, just paint that picture for us a little bit. All right. So the Boston talent show circuit gave the world acts like Donna Summer, who she, she dominated that uh, scene. Uh, Chubby and the Turnpikes, who later became Tavares. Um, you had the Johnson brothers, who became Johnson Crew. Of course, you have New Edition. Mm-hmm. I mean, but like you also have like a whole slew of people that came after. You know, you've heard New Kids on the Block before. That's right. Um, they, they also came through that whole scene. Uh, free Marie Antoinette. She came through that scene. Uh, there's a laundry list, and then of course we go into like the funk. You know, you have the Energetics. You know, you have um, Energetics. Later became Planet Patrol. So same guys. Okay. So th- there's a laundry list of people. What were some of the venues like? What, were, what venues were notorious for hosting the ill talent shows? Well, basically there was one that was really known for it. It was called Roscoe's and it was in, um, near Dudley square and Roxbury. And it was a place where everybody would go. I mean, the thing to remember is that there weren't a whole lot of big venues for black music at the time. One of our legendary venues didn't even like, wasn't even active at the time. As far as for soul and R and B music, it's called the sugar shack. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the history of Boston and soul music, the story starting to sugar shack. And of course, Boston was a jazz Mecca and then we'll just be here all day. But like the main place where everybody went to and everybody congregated was Roscoe's for everybody. Okay. 
Okay, so let's stay in Boston. When I, I'm a big, I'm a big hip hop fan. Um, mm-hmm. When I think of Boston and MCs from the Boston area, two people come to mind, and that's Guru, rest in peace, and mm-hmm. that's Ed OG. For some people, they may not know the rich history of hip hop in Boston before that. When we think, some people think Boston, they think Gangstar, they think Almighty RSO, and for good reason. Yeah. Who are some of the earlier names that came before these guys or around during this time that sometimes may be overlooked or forgotten or not spoken about enough? Well, okay, so the original incarnation of RSO is different because they had a guy named Orange Man, they had Big T, they had Kevski. Before my cousin, um, who was named Emo Ian in a group called Body Rock Crew, joined Almighty RSO once Kev left and Orange Man left. Okay. So, like, you have uh, Ed OG's original crew is um, FTI Crew, Fresh to Impress. Um, also, later on, you had groups like uh, TDS Mob, which were, you know, like the neighborhood, our neighborhood rap crew. They were, like, legendary, but they only put out, like, so much material. And then later, there was a compilation made. So, you know, there, there's like a laundry list of rap groups from back in the days. But the thing is that like a lot of them didn't make it to the next iteration. And, you know, Gangstar used to be Gangstar Crew slash Gangstar Posse before it became Gangstar and then morphed into the Gangstar Foundation. Who are some of the early members of Gangstar? Because I was, I was discussing this with someone and we were mm-hmm. talking about Gangstar and, you know, the, the conversation just revolved around Guru and Premier, um, you know, legends, mm-hmm. of course. But I yeah. was saying to them that, you know, Guru, Big Sugar, all those types of people, they were, they were Gangstar before Premier even got there. Yeah. Who, are some of the, who are some of those names in the early in, uh, incarnation of Gangstar that we may not know about? The first incarnation of Gangstar was Swab D, Sugar Bear, and Keithy E. Suge goes to jail. Um, Suave leaves the group. The next incarnation of Gangstar involves Keith the E, the guru, DJ Want to Be Down, Mike D. Uh, it involves uh, Lil Smitty. Um, who else was down? Uh, Beatmaster J, Damo D. Ski. And that was pretty much like the core of the group for a while. Boston has played a massive part in the soundtrack of my early, mid, early to mid-20s and definitely into my 30s. So people like um, Terminology, Rex, the whole show of crew, um, yeah. Elder Head Toucher. Um, I'm going to go on record. I think Two Complex is one of the perfect rap songs um, in yeah. my category. Um, those guys, could you highlight some of the, the newer talent in Boston and how they're carrying the legacy of the people you mentioned previously forward? To me... One of the things is that energy never dies, it just changes form. And the younger generation of Bostonian MCs, to me, like, it's encompassed, this a laundry list of names, but to me, I can just rattle off a few. Um, Latrell James, uh, Cliff Notes, Oompa, uh, Brandy Blaze, uh, of course, you have like the Dutch rebels of the world, you know, um, you know, Avenue, uh, Prano. Uh, it's, it's, there's so many. And the thing is that like I'm in the thick of it. So there's so many names. Um, Lotus Taylor. There's so many uh, young up and comers. Uh, what's his name? Uh, Najee Janey. 
there's so many young up and comers that have just like taken the torch and run with it and done things we never expected for them to do that like I'm just really proud and I feel like a, a, a uncle just <laughs> being at the family a barbecue and just watching the kids right. perform sometimes. Right. Yeah. And it's like, I love that I'm still around for it. Back to Guru and mm-hmm. Gangstar. Guru being an MC that was raised in the Boston area, went to New York and found his, his, what's the word, fortune, you know, he, life changed for him in New York. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How did the original Boston folks feel about him leaving Boston and almost being thought of as dare I say, a New York, a New Yorker in some ways. Because some people look at Gangstar like it's a New York group, even though yeah. both, both of the, the popular members or most popular aren't from there. How do you feel or how do people feel, you know, who were back in Boston? Uh, so when they first left Boston to go to New York, uh, circa like 86, 87, because they signed a deal with KTEL, um, Wild Pitch in 87. So between 86, 87, they're, going, they're already going back and forth to New York, but we still consider them a Boston rap group because everybody had to go to New York. That's where all the labels were, so no big deal. Now, they start recording for Wild Pitch those first four or five, 12 inches between 1987 and 88. They're still a Boston rap group. Um, I have a friend who has an archive of the original Boston rap show that everybody came, the Boston rap scene gravitated to was a show called Leco's Lemma by a man named, a DJ named Magnus Johnstone. And I've seen the records that Gangstar sent Magnus and they're like Boston's best rap group while they're in New York. So up until 88, they're still seen as a Boston rap group. Now what happens is, and this is important, um, DJ Mike D, uh, Mike D, aka <coughs> DJ, want to be down. He's like, yo, we've been we recorded four or five singles. There's no album coming. I'm going back to Boston. Damo D Ski's like, fuck this, I'm out. Um, Lil Smitty leaves. That leaves uh, Keithy E, now Guru, in New York, still on Wild Pitch, and at the time, um, Wax Waxmaster C, aka uh, DJ Premier, had his partner who he met in Texas at Prairie View A&M University, who was also a Bostonian named Top Cat. And he was like, nothing's happening with our deal, our developmental deal with Wild Pitch. I'm going into the armed forces. So he leaves. So Guru and now Premier, you know, go back and forth. Premier's playing him beat tapes because Guru would just go to the offices of Stu Fine and listen, listen to tapes that came in. He's the guy who found... um. Uh, Lord yeah. yeah. So he's like, yo, we need to start working. They go in the studio. They're working with DJ Mark, the 45 King. They do a single, do another single. Wild Pitch is like, we'll do an album. They go to the studio, put out an album, do an album in two weeks. That's no more Mr. Nice Guy. It gets released oh. early in 89. Hold on, you just said the album was recorded in two weeks. Yeah, it was recorded in two weeks. Because no you have to remember, you have to remember that they had recorded about seven or eight songs before that. So they used, I think, three or four of those songs and then they recorded the rest of the songs in two weeks and then they put out the album. Whoa, I didn't know that. Didn't yeah. know that. You learn something new every day. Um, you just recently put out your book, the, the, the Book of Dart. So congratulations on that, first of all. If we talk about the book itself, the Book of Dart, yeah. um, mm-hmm. I have my copy. It's in the living room on the coffee table. Mm-hmm. It's a mix of what you call critical observations 
yeah. and mini essays. Uh-huh. What, what was the process in terms of deciding what essays to include and what not to include? And can you give us just a little bit of insight into some of, some of the, um, the essays or observations that may, may be on the uh, cutting room floor, if that's the right term to use? I had already chosen the essays and the articles that I wanted included in the book. What happened was God is a comedian. And I sent a link to my publisher containing all of my run of um, uh, knowledge darts, which I had done on um, between uh, 2017 that I did on Mass Appeal. What happened is Mass Appeal shut down the site and shut off the archive. So they only pulled about three or four of those articles and, and placed them before they had a chance to add the rest. They scrambled and they started picking up older articles that I've written that they had already considered that I hadn't chosen. So I didn't pick the Nicki Minaj article. I never wanted that in the book. Backstory on the Nicki Minaj piece. The Nicki Minaj piece was supposed to be an article I wrote for AOL Black Voices, which was called AOL BVX. It was one of my earliest writing assignments in 2010 that I was supposed to be paid for. I was promised $125. Then I found out they were paying me $75. Uh-oh. <laughs> my original, the original version of the article was titled, uh, The Rap Game Ain't Shit But Barbie's Dream House. They posted the article with a completely different sanitized title. And they, and I, they, I assume they didn't tell you. And they removed entire passages. Mm. So I emailed them and I said, look, pull my article, take it off the site, and don't ever call me, write me to do anything for you again. After I did that, I then rewrote the article angry and posted it on my Tumblr. Okay. Now, keep in mind that that article is now is going to be 10 years old soon. And I know that the tone of it was really me being angry with the situation and other writers and bloggers and the hierarchy and me taking it out on this woman. So I never wanted that piece in the book. The piece I wanted in the book was um, a book, a piece where I went at uh, uh, Watch the Throne, which was called something, uh, mind, uh, Watch the Throne, but Mind the Gap. <laughs> and oh, man. that piece is the one I wanted included in the book. So it, what's happening is there's going to be a book of Dark 2, and it's going to be the version the pieces that I originally intended to be in the first one with extra pieces included that I've written recently. Oh. Yeah, so as much as I love people's reaction to the Book of Dart, when I first saw it, I was like, this isn't what I picked. This isn't what I intended. This isn't how I intended for it to go. But then I read it, and people were texting me and emailing me and, and people stopping me on the street to tell me about the personal essays and what article they loved and everything. So it's like when you're a creator, you have to realize that sometimes you make things or you intend for things to end up some way and the world receives it a different way. Right. Right. You know, perfect example. We all love um, 
uh, Slick Rick's album, first album, right? The Great Adventures of Slick Rick? Absolutely. He hates it. You know what, though? I'm not, I'm not necessarily shocked by that because as an artist myself, I have people come up to me and say, I love this song. Or mm-hmm. they'll quote a line to me and I'm like, that's the line you guys go crazy over. And I'm like, yeah. I listen to it. Like, you know, Fonte says, all you hear are the mistakes. And yeah. I'm looking to something and I'm cringing. But the reaction, that it's like, well, you know, if people love it, then I guess, you know, it is what it is. Exactly. You, how, how it resonates with other people, that's the end result that you want. Mm. But what you have built up in your head is how you want things to go is a completely different thing. So you, so you have your expectations and the way you want things to go versus how it actually pans out. But when I read the book from back to front, I was like, wow. Mm. Because the way the personal essays blend with the critical stuff and the observations, it really comes together as like a great book. But the one I've envisioned, the one I have in my mind is the one that I really want to put out there. So it can't come out now in 2020 that's right. already taken off the shelf. So mm-hmm. likely it's going to um, be released in 2021. Is this going to be a self-release or is it going to be through same channels? That's a separate book. Um, okay. Nightwork. Nightwork likely is it's a semi-autobiographical book that's uh, set right after the dot-com bubble burst and before 9-11. That book is going to likely be self-released okay. because I'm going to try to make it short, like 150 pages. Okay, cool. I'm looking. I'm looking forward to that. So let, let's stick with, let's stick with the book of dark. Um, there was a chapter when I read it. I'm just like, oh my days. Um, this is exactly how I feel. I can't turn my face off. Sorry, face. Can't turn my mind off. Rather, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I I analyze stuff all the time, and it drives me nuts. You describe it as being um, exhilarating and exhausting. But for someone who works on a number of creative projects, and I'm going to assume you multitask, so you're working on a number of things at the same time. How does being overly critical impact the way you... <laughs> See? Wow. Okay, so what, what, what Dart is showing me is his, his coffee table, and it's filled with notes, books, um, folders, all that kind of stuff. Magazine. my research materials for another project that I'm doing right now. I'm seeing copies of the source that I have never seen... Um, I don't have these copies actually. No, I don't have them. So looking at, look, let's look, if we consider what you've just shown me, all the notes, all the magazines, all of this, how does the analytical brain that you have impact the way that you start and finish projects? Because as a creative, a lot of people say, well, Oh my God, I can't finish it. I'll go back. I'll do stuff. How do you start? And how do you, you stop? All right. So the trick for me is that a lot of the projects that I start, I already researched ahead of time or most of it ahead of time, just in case I'm going to write it in the future. Uh, one of my, to me, the greatest superhero of all time is Batman. All, most, most of the greatest Marvel heroes are basically archetypes or flips or samples or chops of Batman. Um, so that being said, Batman is Batman because Batman can pretty much beat anyone because he's already prepped for it. He's already created the scenario in his head where if I have to encounter this person or this villain or this hero and something goes left, this is how I would, uh, this is how I would attack it. That's how I am with projects. So I pretty much have started things that I haven't written yet. Mm -hmm. Um, 
Right now, I'm writing a piece about um, Ice Cube's America's Most Wanted because the 30th anniversary is the 15th. I actually started writing this last year and set out the, the foundation last year. And I've amended it since over the last month. And the thing that helped me amend it was the piece that I wrote about a Tribe Called Quest's first album, which I had started six months before I started, I even wrote it. And another element that added on to me writing it is because I started doing the, um, the Mob Deep piece. Writing that piece and how thorough I was with it and how many different things that I've put into it. And I wanted to make it, yes, there's a whole, and, and also another part of it is that um, I've spent a lot of time in, in academia and different colleges and universities. I went to the oldest school in America called Boston Latin School. Mm-hmm. And then I went to the oldest public school in America after it, at Boston English High. And then I ended up going to, um, I ended up at Harvard later. So I learned all these different facets of academia. And then when I started going to like all my academic friends who had, who were in the hip hop world and see the way that they relate it, you know, how academics relate with hip hop, I realized that, yeah, the facts are important. All this minutia is great, but you have to get into the field. You have to get into the things the immersion in the culture is what separates you. So when I write my pieces, I try to bring people there. Mm. So if you weren't alive and you weren't my age in that, in that year, keep that in mind because you have to relay that to everyone else because it's easy to get the people, it's easy to preach the converted. But my point is I'm trying to inform someone who has no clue. And that's my um, writing style. At the end of this chapter, I talk about, um, as we mentioned, I can't turn my mind off. You, you talk about some of, you, or you make mention of former journalists moving into different spaces. Mm-hmm. In the media. One thing, I don't know if I ever mentioned this to you, but I have a degree in journalism. And one of the mm-hmm. things that they did when I was studying journalism, they sent me to a courtroom and I had to report on one of the cases. And that really taught me about the importance of accuracy because you have to get the places, the, the, the names, the time, everything needs to be right because you need to paint that picture as if they were there. One thing that irks me about journalism in, in, in the modern era is accuracy. I, you know, For example, if someone says today is, I don't know, the 20th anniversary of so-and-so's album, I don't know if I should celebrate because they've probably got it wrong. If it doesn't come yes. from you, I'm thinking these people have got it wrong. Um, what, in your opinion, as someone who's seasoned and experienced books, websites, whatnot, give me two or three issues or the biggest issues for you with modern journalism. Uh, the speed of it doesn't allow for anyone to be accurate and the monetary compensation that the people get for writing the piece doesn't make it appealing enough for them to actually put in enough work researching and putting in that labor in order to have it be accurate. And accuracy doesn't matter Mm. overall. All that matters is getting people there, reading it, and getting the ad revenue. Because a lot of the times, even if something's wrong or inaccurate, um, there's there's never a retraction. Yeah, I can't remember the last time I saw one of those. So there have been website like there have been articles on complex, you know, there have been articles on different sites, and I've emailed, DM'd, called people, and I'm like, yo, uh, 
that's not the right name. That didn't happen like that. That date is wrong. And what has happened? Nothing. Mm. They're still up. Even to this day, people are celebrating um, album release dates that are absolutely wrong. You know, Straight Outta Compton did not get released in August 1988. You know, De La Soul's Three Feet High and Rising had been out for weeks by the time March uh, 3rd, 1989 came around. You know, uh, Red Man's album was not released September 22nd, 1992. It was released in October, you know, on a Friday. The mm-hmm. same day Mortal Kombat uh, uh, debuted in uh, American, North American, um, uh, what do you call them, arcades. arcades. So, yeah, so, I mean, this just goes to show you that it's like screaming into the void. I keep trying to keep people honest and have them do actual research, but the thing is that I actually can do it, you know? I have the resources, I have the time, air quotes, because I don't really sleep. And that's not everybody else's, you know, reality. Yeah, understood. Understood. I, got, uh, I want to go off on a slight tangent. So our podcast is called Breaking Atoms, named yeah. after the, the album from Main Source. What is the actual release date of that album? Because I have seen so many different dates flying around. I know some people, I know J-Zone said he had it, he saw yeah. it early, I think early 91. Um, what r- roughly, you, don't, I mean, you may not even know the exact date, but rough, what, what's your instinct or what's your inclination in regards to the release, the release date for that album? I still haven't figured it out yet. I haven't figured out the exact or approximate release date. And a lot of it has to do with me going back and forth with J-Zone. And look, and the, the other part is that um, when you research, when an album is released, one of the things you have to do, one of the things I do is I go look at billboard charts. I go look at mentions in magazines and publications. Uh, I try to find um, rap charts if possible, because there are some uh, local rap charts. Try to find charts that were kept by individual stations. I try to find recordings um, of rap shows from the early 90s or late 80s and listen for when uh, certain song singles dropped when the artist visited the station in order to figure out pinpoint when was this album released right and i actually haven't dug into finding out exactly when main sources breaking atoms was released but that is that's going to be uh, um that's going to be something that i actually um dive into rather soon because the the 30th anniversary is around the corner. Yeah, so, it, feels, it feels close based on what I'm, I've seen from your, yourself and J-Zone. So, mm-hmm. I mean, if I happen to stumble across any you know, new information, which is very likely you'll have it, I'll, I'll send it over to you anyway. Thank you. Um, I, I know we're, we're, sh- we're short for time, um, so we're going to wrap up soon. Historian. This is a term that I'm seeing bandied around. Um, mm-hmm. I'm seeing people use it more as a, a, a hook to sell something. LeBron James, um, with all due respect to him as a basketball player, called himself a hip-hop historian and that irked me. Um, This is something that, a hip-hop historian is something I've been called and I reject the title simply because I don't have enough lived experience or knowledge. I'm still learning. Even though I would say I know more than, you know, I'm very much more into the culture than a lot of other people around me, but I'm not a historian and that's a title I can't wear right now. You on the other hand, you, you go outside and say it with your chest. I am a historian. I am a hip-hop historian, and you wear that title proudly. If there was a checklist 
about what traits and qualities people would need to be a historian and what they would need, what areas they need to be knowledgeable in, in terms of rap music and hip hop culture, mm-hmm. what would those qualities and areas be? One thing is that um, just like I, I related a lot to sports, you can't make comparisons and say who could do what to whom and what era unless you have a damn near encyclopedic knowledge of the art culture, what was happening from the beginning all the way to the present. And in order to build that kind of knowledge base, you have to really go back and do the work. And to me, in order to be able to do the work, you have to care enough and take that responsibility on in order to be accurate and learn as much as you can and realize that no matter how much you know, you know nothing. Mm. Everything you know can be turned on its head by something someone else had to say. And that's something that like, I realized early on. I have, I did never write anything in stone because someone's going to come along and tell you, actually, that's not even true. Because um, I'm not aware if you're uh, familiar with The Man Who Shot Liberty Balance. I'm not familiar. What is that? Okay, so it's a movie. And the movie is about a legend that's told. And it turns out it didn't actually happen. But in this film, what someone says is, if it comes down to the truth of the legend, print the legend. Because that's what lives on and that's what everyone loves and is gravitated to. A lot of times when people hear the actual truth, they go, oh, mm. because the legend's so much better. Right. So uh, that's one of the things I learned early on, especially with early hip-hop history. Um, these dates were changed after the fact to line up with something else. or this person was active before this person or yes, we put the narrative around these people, but we exclude disco King Mario, but we exclude grandmaster flowers, but we rarely talk about Pete DJ Jones, you know? So that's one of the things I learned that as much as you think, you know, about hip hop, somebody's going to come along and give you four more names and a different timeline, Mm -hmm. you know, and fuck up everything. So Keep that in mind. And you have to stay open to uh, basically realizing that it's a process. Yeah. And as much as you know, again, as much as you think you know, someone can always come along and add something extra and, sh- and flip everything upside down and always be ready to adapt and change and, ac- and be accepting of that. As opposed to like a lot of old heads, they shut things off and they're like, this is the way it was and it can't be anywhere different. Right. That's not what history necessarily should be about. Sure, things happened in the past, but we can always learn new things and it changes our perspective going forward. Absolutely. Dar, I've got one last question for you and I'm going to leave you to, to do your research and um, all that good stuff. Sure. What's next for you in terms of your career and just, you know, life in, life in general? What's coming up next for you and what can we look forward to? The next wave for me is uh, I'd always want to do adjunct, have an adjunct professorship have my own class. Um, uh, books, of course, Night Work, which is a semi-autographic book I'm doing. Um, 
a couple of series is about uh, the history of um, hip hop journalism is one that I uh, really want to do. Uh, a couple stories about the black history of Boston that I want to do specifically about um, sport or music. Uh, there's a story I'd like to do about uh, Boston's uh, funk all-stars, you know, and their role in black and popular music that hasn't been told. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's mind-numbing. Uh, I have a thing that I do, a podcast that I do is also a brand, and it, it's in clothing and merchandise, uh, Boston Legends, which yep. tells a lot of the untold stories of Black and Latino inner-city Boston that don't get shine. But I found a way to frame it so that people are behind it because it usually gets suppressed. But I found a way that people are like, oh, this is cool. Because of I, I found a way to frame it through sport, the lens of sports, um, you know, film. One thing I've always wanted to do, film. Uh, I have about three different stories about Boston that I would like to get out there and, you know, developing the screenplays and things of that nature. So oh, that's it. Oh. Well, look, um, we can wrap this up. I just want to say thank you. And from, from myself and my co-host, Sumit, uh, we love what you do. And if you, if you do end up doing those hip-hop lectures and professorship and, and whatnot, and it's online, I, for one, will definitely be signing up to, 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 listen, to listen to you speak. Thank you. And the last thing as well, I want to say thank you personally for clearing um, your, your audio for my upcoming album on the song, The Liner Notes. It's one of my favorite songs. Um, it means a lot to me. And for people like us who've heard it, it really, really hits home for them. So I want to say thank you for that. No problem. Anytime is what I'm here for. I appreciate it. Thank you for your time. And that was Dar Adams, ladies and gentlemen. You can reach out to Dar on Instagram or Twitter at Dar underscore Adams, but come correct before you do it because he has a low tolerance level for foolishness. Let me know your thoughts and feedback about the interview. You can hit me up on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at I Am Kinetic or Break the Atoms. Thanks for listening.